Welcome to More Than a Sign, where we talk to some of Milwaukee's most productive realtors, up-and-coming realtors, and those that work alongside us. However, rather than being a platform for shameful self-promotion, these are intimate discussions about the journey, the struggle, the fear, and ultimately, the personal growth along the way. At the end of the day, nobody really cares what we do. All that really matters is who we are. Today, we're going to learn who Jonathan Newby is. But before we do, let me tell you a few things about what Jonathan has done. So Jonathan uh, formed a new team in 2020, late 2021, Mm -hmm. and Jonathan and his team are on track to do $25 million in sales, which is unbelievable. But no disrespect intended, Jonathan, but who really cares about that? (laughs) Let's talk about Jonathan the man. I appreciate that. So we're going to take this all over, kind of random. Sure. Before the podcast started, you said you're going to do your best not to swear. <laughs> so give me the one word you want, wanted not to use on the podcast. I just try not to say fuck. Okay. You know, I try, all right. I try, I try really so not to. there is no chance that that word will come up. <laughs> okay. Good to know. All right. I hope you're right. So you and I met in a very odd way. Mm-hmm. So it was just after uh, we formed Falkroof and Gallagher. Mm-hmm. I believe you were newer to the business. Yeah. Yeah. And somehow you came across my Facebook feed. We weren't even Facebook friends. Mm-hmm. We had never met. And you were standing in a kitchen of a home that was being renovated. Mm-hmm. And you said something like, uh, renovations are only almost complete on this River Hills home. Mm-hmm. It was a snowy winter night. Mm-hmm. I took a chance. I, I you know, tracked down your phone number. I gave you a call. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, my name is Rick Rubin. We've never met. Can I take a peek at this house before it's done? Mm-hmm. I think you were at the house. I was. And Those was, days I kind of lived in my listing. Right. Place. They came few and far between. <laughs> right. So I said, I'll be there in a half an hour. It was kind of a snowy, dark night. Sure. And we met and talked for about half an hour. And, and we became friends within a half an hour. Yeah, I 100% agreed. I was, I knew who Rick Rubin was. I remember when I first got into the business, like, because I mean, that I guess that was still when I had first gotten into the business. But I think five months prior to that, you had a listing. Uh, in Whitefish Bay, or maybe it was Shorewood, but it was the follow-up playhouse. Right, and, right. Uh, so that was back when you were with Circle Realty, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone was like, I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like, this is the follow-up playhouse. And, you know, I just thought it was amazing that, like, you know, this is the guy that gets to represent this property. Mm. And it was such a very unique property. The, the gym outside, right, as if it was California, but it was Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So, like, someone's lifting weights and with a full rig set up <laughs> right. outside uh, in the backyard. But it was really cool to briefly meet you then, but then to really get to know you uh, at that Greenbrook listing. Right. And in 2016, I thought the fact that we became friends right away was a tribute to both you and me, but it's really a tribute to you. I don't think I know anybody that has more friends than you. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. I, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I want to be friendly to everyone, you know, because mm-hmm. I, so I, you know, should I go into a little? Sure. Bit of, okay. Let so, her rip. Well, so I was, I'm from Atlanta mm-hmm. originally, and then I moved to Milwaukee in the middle of high school. And I remember vividly the first, day of high school in Milwaukee, I was at Nicolay High School and everything was fine. Everyone was friendly. But lunch came. I got my lunch. And as soon as I got my lunch and turned around, I had no idea where to go or mm. where to sit. Sure. Like I was like, I don't know anybody. I'm not like, I, I, I guess even as outgoing as I seem to be, I'm still not 
you know, outgoing enough to just sit down with random people and start up a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I walked around the cafeteria holding my lunch for about two or three minutes, threw the lunch away, kept walking, and just walked around the entire day uh, or the entire period. And I did that again the next two days just without buying the lunch, you know, mm. because I didn't know where to eat. And that must since, have been tough. It was tough. I had never known how to make friends. I, my friends that I had made had been my friends my entire life. So I knew how to keep friends. I knew how to help introduce new people to my friend group. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to go to established friend groups and start up relationships. Mm-hmm. And so like loneliness is like something that like really hits me in the heart. Mm. The idea of someone being lonely, the idea of someone not having a circle mm-hmm. to rely on or, you know, for accountability or for, you know, just anything is really tough. And so I just want to be a friend. I don't want, you know, maybe it's a character flaw that I ideally don't want people to have a bad thing to say about me. I just want to be nice. Mm-hmm. And I guess through that process over the years, I've just made some really tremendous friends. And my father, you know, God rest his soul, told me that I could relate to anybody from any background about anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I really take that to heart. So you walked around for two days. Yeah. What was the third day like? What did you do? Uh, I just sat down randomly at a table by myself. Uh, I then had made, you know, it was so funny because my friend, her name is Sandy Reitman, and she was one of the first friends that I made in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And, um, she came up to my Southern accent was a really strong back then. <laughs> and she came up to my locker after day two mm-hmm. and she said, Hey, we're in so many classes today or uh, so many classes together. You know, we should be friends. And Sandy was super popular. Like she mm-hmm. hosted all the parties. She was super fun. Uh, she still is amazing. And she said, you know, we should be friends. And I said, oh, my God, y'all are so nice. Mm-hmm. And then she laughed. And she goes, you said y'all. And I was like, what do you mean? Y'all don't say y'all. You know, <laughs> right. just like super country almost. Funny. So over that, those couple of days, I had had a couple of conversations with people. And then it was a little less formal to kind of like just sit down and like, hey, I'm Jonathan. I had made the introduction. So it kind of happened. So Sandy in an odd way, kind of gave you the confidence. Oh, for sure. And the entree into Nicolay. And now you're basically a Sandy for lots of people. <laughs> I hope so. Right? Doing yeah. that for others. If that That is a tremendous compliment. If I can be a Sandy for people, that is a compliment because she's one of the best people there are. Yeah. You know, she's amazing. So you graduate Nicolay. Mm-hmm. What happens? Give us a so, kind of high-level overview. Well, I thought for sure I was going to go to North Carolina. Okay. Uh, my parents went there. Play basketball? <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> Uh, my parents went to Carolina. My aunt went to Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, my whole family kind of like is from Carolina. I got waitlisted. Didn't work out. Thought about going back home to Atlanta uh, to a school called Morehouse. Hmm. Morehouse College. Uh, you know, notable alums being, you know, MLK. You know? Right. <laughs> and so I thought that I was going to do that. But then I thought it best to kind of stay close to my family. So I went to Marquette, um, which I loved. Hmm. Uh, Marquette's kind of where I became me, I guess. Hmm. Um, you know, I really, I grew a ton out of my, like everyone does, out of your high school self into, you know, who you are as an adult, a young adult. And I went to kind of stay close to my parents. Hmm. But then the, the summer after my freshman year, they moved back down uh-uh. to, to South Carolina, moved down south to South Carolina. And uh, I was then like away from home. Hmm. Uh, but I loved Marquette enough to stay. And uh, it was probably the best thing I ever did. Yeah. Nice. What did you do after school? I ran nightclubs. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. So yeah. talk about that, because that's a really interesting background. Yeah. You know, when your parents pay, at the time, $34,000 a year for your education, and you parlay that into 
selling bottle service in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I don't think that that's going to make them the happiest, mm-hmm. but I just, I loved it. You know, one of my first bosses was Mike Vitucci. Uh, Mike Vitucci owned the bars on Marquette's campus that I used to manage, quote unquote, slash promote, but mainly just promote. And by promote, I mean, I would draw beer specials on chalk with chalk on sidewalks around campus. Mm-hmm. It was just fun to be a part of that business. And I saw a man who had great cars and he was super fun, but he also never missed a kid, his kid's baseball game. Mm. And he was always home for dinner with his wife. And like he could be that family man, but also still have what looked like a fun career. Uh, and so I wanted to get involved in that. And I wanted every step of that process to be known and like just perfected. Mm-hmm. So if it was bouncing, if it was bartending, if it was bar backing, if it was promoting, managing, doing inventory, whatever it was going to be hiring, I wanted to learn those things. And I had the pro- the beauty to learn those things from Mike Vitucci initially, mm-hmm. um, which was a tremendous uh, opportunity for sure. Nice. So what skills were transportable to what you do now? Just people mm-hmm. um, being in service to mm-hmm. people. So I left the bars and got into clubs. So Tony Scoofus who and Tom Wackman, who own, sure. uh, they basically built Milwaukee Street. Well, Tom right. built Broadway first, mm-hmm. and then he made Milwaukee Street. What is Milwaukee is a destination street because of what they did. So from Carnivore to, like, back in the day, Eve, which was before mm-hmm. my time, okay. but 720 and Kennedy's and Dick's and all these different bars and clubs that, like, have become, you know, known around the country. Right. You know, like, the biggest, you know, voices and you know, people in the industry, in the club industry, in Vegas, mm-hmm. in L.A., in New York, hmm. in Miami. They know these people here, and they know them to be held in the same regard as they are um, because they've just been so great at what they do for so long, mm-hmm. you know. And so just working for them and just trying – like, if you want to have – I wanted my name to be synonymous with a good time. If you're lo- you were looking to celebrate, if you were looking to forget – Right. If you were looking to, if it's a bachelor party, if it was a birthday party, if it was a wedding anniversary, whatever it was going to be, I wanted it to be like the concierge, like who, newbie, where should I go for this? Mm. Where's a good place to get that? You know, I really want a good steak. Where should I go? I really want to, you know, go out to something that's not like a club, but something a little more low key. What should I do? Is there a good life? I want to know all of those details to kind of provide value for people. And now I just want to do that from a real estate perspective. I want to be, I don't look to have my business run as a person who's consistently handing out business cards, consistently reminding people that I'm in real estate, mm-hmm. I want it to be just known that, hey, if you have a real estate question, you got to call a newbie. Yeah. And I'm, like, I tell people all the time, like, you know, people sometimes come up to me with questions like, I'm not looking to buy or sell right now. And I'm like, look, that's cool because I'm not right. in this business today. It's a compliment. And yeah, it is. I'm, I'm here for tomorrow too, you mm-hmm. know, and to not be salesy, mm-hmm. to be more intentional about my relationships. So, yeah, that I just took that customer service standpoint from – the nightlife profession mm-hmm. and tried to just push it over to, you know, real estate. Why did you decide that the nightclub business wasn't for you? Well, I, I don't think I really decided that. I think it was decided for me. I wanted to own my own club hmm. or bar and I didn't have capital, you know, as much as I loved my job, I wasn't making a ton of money. I just got a lot of stuff for free. So it looked like I was doing well, but I was sure. calling my mom and begging my girlfriend not to leave me, you know, yeah, who's right. now my wife. She didn't leave. <laughs> um, but <laughs> You must be a good beggar. <laughs> I was, I'm a great beggar. <laughs> right. I'm a great one, you know. Um, but, you know, so I had stopped looking at the nightlife business as fun mm-hmm. and started looking at it as a business. And I just was like, I want my own, but I don't have any capital. So 
my wife sold me to get into real estate. She's like, you can sell people overpriced bottles of liquor that they don't need. You can sell them houses that they do need. Yeah. And so I got into it with the intention of like, if I can make an extra 20 or 30 grand a year, set it aside in a few years, I can go to an investor with some capital and say, look, let's do this. I have the network. I have the know-how because I've learned every facet of the business. Mm-hmm. Let's do this together and we'll make it happen. And within three months of selling houses, I was like, no, this is it. This mm-hmm. is what I want to do. Cause I love the freedom and the potential. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun to right. learn that business and then to find out that I was pretty good at it and then to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really a lot of fun. And it's a lot of work in the beginning oh, to start from nothing. Scary. Right. I mean, yeah. you had a, a nice database of friends, let's say, sure. yeah. that, that you made over the years. Crazy to think that the Jonathan who walked around the hallways at lunch is now the Jonathan with, I asked you the other day, how many friends do you have in your cell phone? You say how many friends? I mean, I, the numbers of my phone are, are it's pretty bad because I, well, I also should probably go through that and clear it. But I think that you said who shares a phone number with you mm-hmm. that you right. have of theirs. And I said probably a thousand people, you know, mm-hmm. I think that that's probably the case. It's weird because that's why I love Nicolay so much because what I thought was this daunting sort of reality. I mean, I still have a ton of friends mm-hmm. every morning. I wake up probably between, I'd say, 545 and 645. The first thing I do before I get out of bed is the daily wordle. And the first person I send it to is my buddy Steve Cicero from high school. Sure. Like, it's just like a standard. Like, and, you know, the list goes on. Like, I had lunch with one of my best friends, the man who gave the best man speech at my wedding, mm. Hamad, from high school, yeah, you know? Nice. And, uh, you know, so it's just, and I planned our 10 year reunion, which was fun. I didn't think mm-hmm. that, like, a person who moved here in the middle of high school would have a say in, like, what, what happened. But at the time, I was the concierge of the city, newbie. What should we do for our 10 year reunion? It's mm-hmm. like, it had worked out that way. And I think we had a good time. So, yeah, it's, you know, growth is a weird thing. Did you ever have Mrs. Liddick? Yes. So I went back and taught her class for seven years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I didn't even know that you did that. I did. Uh, once a week, I would go and teach business. I was supposed to do a certain curriculum, but I created my own. Sure. We played Monopoly without money and, you know, different things to really get when the kids this? thinking. This would have been uh, throughout the 90s. That's so weird because it's all about, I remember when I went back to my elementary school randomly 15 years ago, Fernbank Elementary School in Atlanta. And I remember walking in there and it felt so small. Right. But when I went to Nicolet, it felt massive. Right. I was like, how is this? Like, I mean, like the wings are so far away and mm-hmm. it's like, the, they're so wide. The always are so wide. I was like, it just felt like a different place, but the same place at the same time. Yeah. You know? Um, so there were two lessons that I taught from year to year in Mrs. Liddick's class. One was, and she was a little nervous the first time I did it, but I erased everything on the chalkboard. And I said, um, I'm going to need your help, but I want to put everything up on the board that you can be and still be successful. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I put up was unintelligent. Then I put up disabled. Mm -hmm. Then I put up addicted to drugs and, you know, went through all the things that you can have, all of these obstacles, um, everything that you would think that you wouldn't associate it with success. And I'd fill the whole chalkboard up and the kids would be spellbound because these were so many things that you were taught that you couldn't be to be successful. Um, And then I erased the whole board. I said, there's only one thing you can't be, four letters, and I put up lazy. Mm. That's the only thing you can't be. 
It's the only thing you can't be. You so, can overcome anything but laziness. It's hard to be. It's hard to do sometimes. <laughs> right. Well, I think you told me once that um, we go back to Greenbrook, you know, because that was an interesting situation. I think most people don't know this, but like usually in a transaction, there's not a lot of, I guess, face to face from co-brokers. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, the buyer's agent uh, and the seller's agent, they don't always like see each other, if ever. You know, it's usually just like email exchange, a phone call initially to talk about the offer situation, especially this market or the former market, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but with this situation, because your buyers were in Madison and the house had so many questions and unknowns because it wasn't listed, it wasn't publicly listed. Um, and so it was like, OK, well, let's have this conversation about and get to learn about the house. So we talked a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember like because, you know, in my first year, like I was just like, you know, I get this done, but then what's next? Mm-hmm. I can't wait to be so established in this business that I don't have to fear, you know, the next deal or whatever. And I remember asking you, like, how it feels to, like, you know, really feel that way. And you're like, I look at every closing like it's my last. Right. And I was like, that's, you know, you said fear is a motivator. Mm-hmm. So fear will prevent you from being lazy because, you know, I think that people do one or two things when they're afraid. They either cower or they act. Right. And I guess, you know. If you can prevent yourself from cowering, even if you cower for a minute, you know, if you can snap yourself out of it to act mm-hmm. on whatever that fear is, you know, you'll be fine. For me, I would say it's humility. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not, a, I'm missing the worry gene, but it's humility that I feel like there are all sorts of great choices. And whenever I'm mentoring new agents, I always say that if I was walking into a listing appointment and they were walking out, and they hadn't sold a single home, I would still look at them as the same level of competition as any of the top producing agents in town. And that's because everyone has a story. And a story will beat track record any day. Mm. If you have a compelling story and a mission and something that drives you, that's what people want, right? I mean, who cares that we've sold, you know, thousands of homes? Mm -hmm. People want to connect, react. They want to be excited and motivated. They want positive energy. So yeah, I'm humble as I've ever been because everybody is worthy out there. Oh, I listen, could not agree more. I don't, I take nothing for granted. Like at all. Like I try my best to always be thankful for every opportunity that I have. I don't, I won't, I mean, and it borders on superstition. I won't save a new client's number until the deal is done. I don't want to like assume that like I'm, I've locked them in, you know, mm. I have a referral from somebody. I handle it with kid gloves. You know, I don't just assume that I'm going to have, you know, a $2 million a month. Uh, and I'm thankful for every transaction. Mm-hmm. I have a routine, you know, I, I used to be really religious when I was a kid. Uh, I'm not as much anymore, I guess. And I guess you could call myself, I, I could call myself spiritual, I guess, but I'm always thankful. So I'll play, I play the same three songs whenever I, uh, hmm. after every closing, if I have multiple closings in a day, I'll play those same three songs and nice. on really, really good days every once in a while, you know, once a year or so, I almost just play those songs only in the car because of, uh, a good day of production. One is a gospel song that kind of takes me back to my roots called Never Would Have Made It by Marvin Sapp. Uh, and I still really lean into gospel music every once in a while, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, just, part of my upbringing. Uh, the second is a song called Celebration by Kanye West, 
which is random. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is a song called One More Time by Daft Punk, as if, like, one more time we're doing this. Let's keep going. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't take anything for granted. It's all about, like, you know, I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. I think I do work hard, but there are people who work a lot harder than I do in different markets and different businesses, and they don't have the success that I have. So it can't just be because of my own doing. Mm-hmm. It has to be, you know, the product of, uh, you know, favor or being blessed or being fortunate. Yeah. And so I can't assume that, like, that level of fortune is just earned. Mm-hmm. It has to be, you know, <sighs> luck to some degree, I guess. Right. We didn't start at home flight. No. Right. No. Yeah. So let's touch on a couple of non-work items. Sure. So you have a beautiful daughter. I do. You have a beautiful wife. I do. You have a beautiful dog. Like I said, right. fortune. I don't know how I got these things, but right. yes, I have all of those three things. Right. You're yeah. the fourth cutest newbie. I am without a doubt <laughs> right. the fourth cutest. <laughs> in, in, in the state of Wisconsin, for sure, the fourth cutest newbie. Right. Outside, outside the, there's only four of us here. So right. outside of the state of Wisconsin, I'm further down the list. But yeah, yeah. in the state of Wisconsin, number four. Talk about your family and what it means to you. Uh, my family is... I lost my father to COVID in 2020, mm-hmm. and then we found out we were pregnant a month later. Yeah, uh, and you know, I told I've like Maureen Stale, who is my father, used to call my Milwaukee mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maureen Stale used to um, we'd have random, con- especially when KW was much smaller. We'd have random conversations just about like what I was trying to accomplish, and I just wanted my if I was going to stay in Milwaukee, I wanted this name to be something mm-hmm. like the newbie name. I wanted to like mean something. I wanted to like have equity i wanted it to i wanted that name to just kind of be one that was synonymous with like honor and quality and trust you know i just wanted it to be a good name mm-hmm. and so mainly for my father um because he worked so so hard he was very very successful at what he did but he always w- wished he had done more and i think that that's kind of just in our genes to always want more and feel that we aren't as successful as he should have been mm-hmm. because of our own doing but i just I wanted to build something with my wife, and my wife is incredible. Mm-hmm. She's in tech. She manufactured that career herself. She went to college at UWM for marketing and health and healthcare administration, mm-hmm. and she was a Bevcart girl at the Legends Country Club out in, uh, well, I guess all throughout Waukesha County. Um, there's three courses there now, I think. And one day, while being on the bev cart, one of the guys whose kids that she nannied was playing with friends of her friends of his, not clients, in the middle of the day on a Wednesday, and she's like, "What do you do for what do you do for a living that you're able to just play golf with friends mm-hmm. on a work day?" You know, and he goes, well, "I I do this, and I kind of set my own hours, and I've been doing it long enough that I'm established." And so she pivoted. You know, she was in the middle of working at Freighter in a position that she hated because mm. it was just. Being confront, she worked in the ER department, so being confronted with, I guess, trauma consistently mm-hmm. uh, was really, really tough on her. And so she decided that she was going to create this IT career for herself. Mm. And so she started doing that the same year that I started real estate. So we both got into a business that I got into a business that didn't pay a salary at all. Mm-hmm. She got into a business that she didn't have any experience in, and basically had to start from the very, very bottom. And that bottom was in Chicago. Mm. So she worked for CDW in Chicago for like 30 grand a year. 
half of what she made went towards the train pass, the Amtrak train pass that she mm-hmm. had paid for monthly. However, the Amtrak in the morning would get her in too late. So she'd have to take the metro out of Kenosha. So we would wake up and leave the house by four to get her to the metro station in Kenosha to catch the train to then get in by 7.30 to then start her day. And if work went a little too late, the Amtrak that left at 5.15, she'd miss. She'd have to take the one that left at 6.30. Mm-hmm. She'd get in much later. And it was just like, that was our, that was almost a year of that. Right. While I'm trying to create a real estate business, which you know, when you start, there's no, no one hands you a, you know, a right. client. So I'm trying to create this. She's trying to create that. And we're doing it together with not much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, a nice loan from my parents, which we ran through very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we'd have days where we'd wake up in the morning. I tell the story all the time. We'd wake up in the morning. We'd look at each other and we'd say, okay, we need some money. Who do we ask, your dad or mine? And then she'd say, well, my dad wants the money back and your dad's going to make you feel guilty. So which is the lesser two evils depending on the day? Right. And we would just, we did that. And then next thing you know, Domino started falling. And then she took that career, that job at CDW. And then she took another gig working from home for a place that was in like Rosemont, Illinois. And then that gave her a little bit of a pay increase and there was no train, which was great. So it was like a raise for the family. And then she took that and then probably that to another job with a local company where she had a very terrible employer. I'll just remain mm-hmm. mum on who and where. Uh, and then eventually she had enough of a resume to go after the job with Dell. Uh, and at the time she was always going for a job with EMC, which was mm. the company, but they were being purchased by Dell. So the acquisition put her employment on hold. And then she interviewed seven times. And I remember seeing her in our living room in our, you know, 600 square foot apartment together, writing with a dry erase marker on the sliding door to our patio, you know, whiteboarding, basically, you know, what she assumed they were going to quiz her on Mm. at the interview, the seventh stage of the interview process. And then she got it. And by this time, I started to get some success in real estate, which was great. And so she got the job, which was massive. She's been a rock star there ever since. She's Mm -hmm. made President's Club. She's been, you know, regionally recognized consistently. She's just... And she's the youngest person there. She's 32. Amazing. And she's the youngest person there by a decade. For the longest time, she was the only woman that was there. Uh, she is for sure, I believe, still the only woman of color mm-hmm. that's there. And so to see her do these things, I mean, this is a business that, A, it changes every year. And she's educated herself on it without schooling, no college education on it. She taught herself this business. Mm-hmm. And now she's just amazing at it. And all people see is where she is now. And that's one of the main (laughs) reasons for this podcast is people coming into this business and there's a sea of people coming into this business Mm -hmm. every month. Mm -hmm. All we see is where, all they see is where we are today. And like you look at the sacrifices you made, you look at the sacrifices that your wife made and there's lots of uncertainty. There's lots of heartache. There's lots of setback. There's failing forward. And that's really what it takes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people that make it, it's not easy for anybody. Sure. And it's not a straight line for anybody. Sure. Tell newer agents that I've just spoken with randomly or if they're on my team that, you know, this business really comes down to the law of averages. 
you know, and if you let up, you'll never get the reward. You have to like consistently keep doing what you know to be true, like what works for business. Like it's not going to be like I, I tell people, I don't care about putting my name on like a grocery divider at Syndex. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not looking to sell some random person a house. Mm-hmm. Like I want to just work for and help the people who I know and the people who they know. Right. There's enough business for everyone to do great mm-hmm. if they just focus on those things. And so I care about people. And so like I tell these agents, I'm like, look, just focus on who you know. And eventually you're going to get a random phone call. Like, hey, you know, I still remember the first random one I got, Brian Jacobs, my first year in the business. Hey, you know, I have a condo that I want to sell close to Marquez campus, a duplex that I want to sell on the east side, and my wife and I want to buy a house. I went. I know Brian and Kay Jacobs. I've known them since I was 19 years old at Marquette. And they trusted me to help with three of their assets. Mm-hmm. And it just came from me doing what I was. I didn't call Brian one day. Mm-hmm. Brian reached out to me, Facebook messaged me, because he had seen what I was doing. And if you just keep doing that, you keep your head down, eventually people are going to be like, oh, okay, well, I we should call Rick. We should call mm-hmm. him. I mean, they know to call Rick. Everyone knows to call Rick. <laughs> Hell, I'd call Rick. Um, but it's just, you know, you just have that eventual sort of payoff mm-hmm. that comes from just being intentional about your relationships and caring about your people. Great points. Great points. And I can tell you're passionate about that. It's, they're yeah. not just words. So as you'd imagine, because I'm longer in my career and, and I remember, you know, I didn't even think about this, but it just came into my head and we're going to keep going back to Greenbrook because sure. I think there's so many lessons there. Another one is you asked me, how did you get to where you are? And I didn't give you an answer that was do this, this, and this. (laughs) I said to you, Jonathan, the only difference between you and me is that I've been doing it longer. Yeah. Right? And a lot of people that are just starting out come to me and say, what do I do to get business? And the truth is, it is much harder to get a car to go from zero to 70, you know, when you get on an entrance ramp than it is to keep the car at 70. Mm, So don't really look at what I do at this point in my life. Like this is a legacy of lots of hard work and giving and pouring into people and all of that. Look at what your peers are doing that are working the hardest because they're the ones that are going to make it, that are doing the most open houses, that are sending the most note cards, that are pulling stuff out of their living room and family room to stage a house. Like whatever it takes to get done, like you can take your signals from the people that are just getting on the entrance ramp as well. Another really important lesson that I think you and I both learned on Greenbrook is that of all the transactions I've ever been involved in, that was the one with the most problems. Oh my God, so many problems. None of them had to do with you or me. No. um, But we were were both involved um, and remained involved, me personally, for years after it closed. And one of the things that you and I talked about the other day is that I think there's a false perception that the clients that are happiest and the clients that will refer you are the clients whose transactions went the smoothest. And it's really the opposite. Because if they go really smooth, they assume that anyone can do it. Exactly. But when a problem or two problems, or in this case, 50 problems pop up, and you're there day in and day out Mm -hmm. as part of the solution, that's when people realize your character how much you care about them. Those yeah. are the people that refer. That was a 
very tough transaction. Like the the general contractor lied to the owner, said that he had pulled permits. We didn't find out that permits had been hadn't been pulled until the inspection. Mm-hmm. So then we had to go back through everything to make sure it was done properly. And then after that, randomly, like a pinhole, I don't even know how it happened, but there was a leak, a pipe burst in the foyer, and then it was, we had to get everything there resolved. It was just one thing after another. And then the process, your buyers were driving from Madison Mm -hmm. in the winter, I think twice during snow. And I was, and and this is the thing, that house, because I had sold maybe a million dollars worth of real estate over the seven months you know prior to that Mm -hmm. and so i was like and at the time that was my biggest that would have been the biggest check you know because at that point in time i was focused on the check because i had no money right i was trying Mm -hmm. to pay my parents back from what i owed them and then i i really wanted to buy an engagement ring you know (laughs) so Mm -hmm. i was like if i can get this deal done you know we actually the funny thing about it was that we had Three transactions that we did together mm-hmm. in that the the first six months of 2016, and one of them was like, "This is why Rick Rubin is Rick Rubin," because I was doing a deal in Whitefish Bay on Lakeview, and the buyers fi- Wells Fargo, the buyers financing fell apart literally two weeks before closing, and the one of the investors who I don't have a relationship with anymore, called me angrily as if it was my fault. Mm -hmm. And he said, if this deal doesn't close in two weeks, there'll be someone else's sign in the yard. And I was in the, again, I was in the process of trying to like set up that security for the family, like a foundation of like, we're not paycheck to paycheck. We can actually have some reserves and still buy an engagement ring for my wife. Mm -hmm. And I freaked out. And I don't know, you called me or I don't know what happened. But you said, I have a buyer that wants to buy this house in Lakeview. And they bought it from Germany via FaceTime. Right. And he was asking questions about what the floors were made out of. And I knew that the buyer before, who was, it was an investment property, it was a remodel, sorry. He had selected these random floors and concrete countertops, which mm-hmm. were like just, you know, preference. And you got the guy, and they closed into it was a cash joke, but closed in two, two weeks. weeks. Right. And I was like, this guy just saved my ass again, you know? And I, uh, and then we just did a very easy transaction, which had never has re- resulted in anything. The lots on, uh, the Greylog in East Fox Lane mm-hmm. that was just going to be developed. I don't think it's been developed since. But, right. But we did those three transactions, and those are three of the four transactions that got me to be able to marry my wife. So thank you. Nice. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Those are three of the four. Yeah. So let me ask you a tough thing. Sure. I don't know how I came upon it. I'm not a big social media guy. Sure. I don't know if it was a YouTube video. I don't know if somebody sent it to me, but it was your dad's speech at your wedding. Ah, uh, yes. I was so moved that I called you. Yeah, you did. And there aren't many people that you say, I wish I would have met. Yeah. But your dad, he came across as such a larger than life guy. He so was, charismatic, yeah. such a big personality. But it was about you and not about him. Yeah. Um, and about your your my wife. your wife and you and not about him. Yeah. But what, what did you learn from him? I learned everything from my dad. In fact, I, I've learned later on in life when I catch myself, people down south, we speak in with analogies, you know. And my father was big on that. And I've always done so, but I think that um, 
I'm using his analogies now. Hmm. And, you know, just stories that I've even told to my brother or my brother-in-laws about, like, my brothers-in-law, sorry, about, like, just trying to give advice and, like, like one that he used to say is focus on the donut, don't focus on the hole. Hmm. You know, like, and then he <laughs> he would use the story as if, like, you know, I see where you're walking. Like, yeah, I'm in a helicopter and you're walking a straight line with, like, authority. And I see that if you keep walking that line, you're going to walk right off that cliff. And I'm yelling from the helicopter to stop. And you just, you're, you can't hear me. You can't you perceive what I'm trying to tell you. Hmm. But I see where you're heading. And, like, you know, it's not because I know more than you. I just see more than you. Right. And so my dad was great at that. And, you know, losing, I've told this to people before, like, you know, I, my father passed when I was 34, 30, I think 34. I don't even, these last three years have been wild. Yeah. So I'm 35 right now. I'll be 36 in a month. So yeah, when I was 34, my father passed away. And, um, if he had lived another 34 years, you know, I would have still said he died too soon. Yeah. Right. Cause that's just me being greedy. You know, mm-hmm. I, my father was my best friend. He, I called him all the time. His schedule was a lot more freeing than my mother because he was also an educator and he was a consultant uh, in healthcare. Uh, so he had more time. Mm-hmm. So I'd talk to him randomly throughout the day. And I think one of the blessings that I have in his passing was that when he, the month, I believe it was a month that he was in the hospital, um, maybe three weeks that he was in the hospital. And during that time, like, I couldn't talk to him on the phone because he was on a breathing machine. And mm-hmm. if he wasn't on a breathing machine, he was being inundated with calls and texts from a million other people. Sure. And I would just say, look, Dad, I know you're talking to all the people. I don't want to take your energy. I'll just shoot you a text saying I love you and keep on pushing. I mm-hmm. would just do that, you know. Yeah. And so I'd gotten out of the habit of talking with him every day so that when he passed, I didn't have to learn that. Mm-hmm. Like it just, I was thankful for that at least. But one of the best things is that he got to meet my wife. Yeah. He got to, he was teaching, so he couldn't come to the event, but he got to see that I was, I made Milwaukee Business Journal 40 under 40. Mm-hmm. Like, that was as much for me as it was for him. You know, that's like, that all that money he threw into that tuition that I mm-hmm. paid for with, you know, bottle service, you know. Right. Thanks for that, Dad. I'm going to go, mm-hmm. you know, uh, plan bachelor parties. Uh, he got to see me actually thrive in Milwaukee. Yeah. Uh, even though he kind of dropped me off here, they dropped me off here. But that wedding day was, he said, was, was one of the best days of his life. And that speech was quintessential George. Yeah. Like, that's just who he was. Well, I'm an easy cry, and I'm going to try not to cry. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I'm an easy cry, too. I lead with my heart, and I think 100%. the tears follow. But to draw on what you said a minute ago about you walking and him being in a helicopter, when you used to call him for money mm-hmm. and he made you feel guilty, mm-hmm. it's because he, he was in the helicopter and he 100%. saw what you were capable of. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And it, at the time, because initially, you know, we saw, I mean, listen, I didn't start asking for money when I started being in real estate. You know, yeah. I started asking for money way before that. And so at the time, I was asking for money, basically trying to convince them to give me the money and also to convince them that I knew what I was doing. Right. I know what you see looks like a party, but it's not like I'm, that was when I was 23, 24. Now I'm 25, 26. I'm, I'm looking at it differently. Mm-hmm. And trust me. And they always did. You know, they always trusted me. Um, they, my mom, my mother still does. You know, yeah. I text my mother every day. I try to call nice. her multiple times a week, two or three times a week. Um, because, you know, she's just, 
you know, she's the strongest woman I know that's dealing with still one of the hardest things to deal with. I mean, she was had been with my father back to North Carolina since they were 18 years old. So yeah. 18 to 64 years. Right. And now you have to exist without that person, you know, like in the blink of an eye. Right. And she was in the hospital with COVID before he was. Mm. So they went the better part of six weeks without being in the same room. Wow. And I still, to this day, you know, it is what it is, but I still, to this day, think that had my father been able to be transport, transported to my mother's unit at the hospital that, you know, the same hospital, mm-hmm. to my mother's unit where her team could have taken care of him just mm-hmm. to like, because he didn't have COVID anymore. He was just dealing with the effects of COVID. Right. It wasn't contagious, but he couldn't be moved because he was, uh, he was vulnerable. Um, he'd still be here. Yeah. Just like to see my mother's face. Sure. Because yeah. there's nothing my father loved more than my mother. Right. Like, me, love me fine. My brother Joshua loves him fine. But he'll throw us both away for Benita, like in a second. What a blessing. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I can't blame him for it. And you can draw upon that with your wife. 100%. When you run into rough patches, you can look at that. Because it wasn't all easy and it wasn't a straight line for them either. Not, nope, not at all. Yeah. And my father used to tell me, like when I was you know, 10, 11, 12, kid, you can marry half as good as I've done, and you'll be perfect. Mm-hmm. And so, like, watching my father's love for my mother, and, you know, obviously they fought every once in a while. Who doesn't fight, you know? Sure. But they, you know, it was never, like, violent. They were never, they were never yelling at each other. But um, they'd have arguments, and, you know, you look back on that, and you're like, oh, well, you know, if I can just mimic this as much as possible, find someone that deserves that, that you know, find someone that I can beg i deserve you know Mm -hmm. um and i definitely think i found that with my wife watching my wife be a mom is she's so good at it Mm -hmm. i know that she nannied and you know her youngest sibling is a decade younger than her so she started like in her teenage years kind of being like a mom i guess you could say but um she's just so good at it like she's so good yeah and after watching her be this good and having seen how she dealt with pregnancy and the birth, it's can't help but to be happy that the baby looks like her. Cause it'd be mm-hmm. cruel if, the, if she came out looking like that. It's funny. You know? Yeah. I'm equally as blessed. I have a, a wife that is a wonderful, loving mother and it's not easy. No. It's like a 24 seven job. Yeah. Um, all right. What, uh, I'm going to ask you two more questions. Sure. Then we're going to wrap it up. This has been really nice, by I, the way. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. You know, just like the first, <laughs> just like the first conversation on Greenberg. Right. Um, so uh, I'm going to ask you a tough question and a silly question. Sure. Tough question is, um, what do you want your daughter to learn from you? <sighs> just to be kind. You know, everyone needs a friend. Be a friend to everyone. Mm-hmm. You don't know the circumstances that people are going through um, that kind of have shaped who they are. So don't see them for where they are. See them for where they've been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and then just like my father said, like your yes mean yes, your no mean no. You know, like my father's nickname was Bird because he was really really tall, six five, six six, and so they my cousins call him Uncle Big Bird, and mm. they, I have. 30, I have a 37-year-old cousin who still refers to him as Uncle Bigford. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so my daughter, her nickname is Birdie. Cute. And uh, if she can have my father's moral compass and 
my wife's looks, I think mm-hmm. she'll be just fine. Nice. <laughs> so I've, I'm going to add, that was 1A. 1B, mm-hmm. same question. Every year there's a kid at Nicolay walking the hallways. Sure. Right? We've all been there some point in our life. Maybe it wasn't high school, but somewhere in our life, we just didn't know how to fit in. Sure. What do you say to that person? That the world is much bigger than what you see it to be. And that perspective is everything. Mm. So when you're in those hallways and you're dealing with the stresses of social anxiety and pressure from school and what's next and having to have a plan and people asking your parents, friends, and your friends, friends, parents, and whatever, they're consistently asking you what your plan is, you know? So having to have the answer to that question, like it's easy to get kind of caught up in, caught up in the moment of what you're doing, but the world is so much bigger than that. And if you step outside of that little, I guess, echo chamber, um, you start to see things for what they are and it puts less pressure on your day-to-day situations. Nice. You know, like my wife, you know, she's so, so smart. And the way that she talks about, because she recognizes that she can be compulsive about like emails. Like she'll read them a million times over just mm. before she sends it, you know, but she's smart enough to know what she doesn't know. And so she's intentional about like focusing on those things and just that's where she puts pressure on herself. Everything else, like you're good at things. You're, you're good at most things. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you're good enough at most things. So just knowing those things and then, okay, if I just need to dot these I's and cross these T's, I'll focus on those. But the sentence reads. Yeah, nice. All right, dumb question. Sure. Um, Rumor has it Mm -hmm. you had a hand in the creation of the chicken wings at Carson's, (laughs) which are absolutely addictive. They are. Hit me with that story. So Renee Carson, her and her uh, ex-husband, Dean, came here to start the Carson's here. I think along with uh, Tan Lowe, who's the developer for the Mm -hmm. Modern, and Rick Barrett. Great guys. Amazing guys. Amazing, amazing guys. This is back in my club days when the first, when the place first opened up. And I remember them bringing all these food options to our offices at 720. And we were just like, this food is so good. This food is great. And then I learned quickly that that Greek marinade that they put would be good on this table in front of us. These <laughs> microphones. Right. I'd probably consider eating it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember talking to Renee, who is such a sweetheart. Uh, and they're, she's since moved back to Chicago, I believe, but. I said, look, this marinade, you could do grilled wings with this marinade with the feta as opposed to ranch, and it would be amazing. And then she did them, and they're on the menu. And oh, they're they magic. Are, they're so good. Right. They are so, so good. I can't get enough of them. It's hard to order anything else when I go there. Well, so I'm going to finish with a compliment that I paid you years ago. I was having lunch with my wife, and you walked up to the table, and and I introduced Amy to you, and I didn't even think about it. It just came out. But I said, this is my friend, Jonathan. He's a crossover star. And a crossover star is somebody that uh, bridges different genres. Mm-hmm. And what I meant and what I mean is that you have friends that are young and old, mm-hmm. rich and poor, left and right, mm-hmm. black and white, mm-hmm. every type of every type of descriptor that you can imagine uh, every religion, every rural and yeah. 
city dwellers. It doesn't <laughs> matter. You embrace and you're embraced by everybody. So to me, you're the ultimate crossover artist. And it's such a gift and a blessing. And I really appreciate yeah, that. We're all lucky for it. I, uh, I really appreciate that. I just try to be a friend, you know, as much as possible. Sometimes it's hard. And, you know, I think empathy, if you, you know, if you can't empathize, you need to sympathize. Yeah. And so I can't understand a hundred percent of someone's background but if i can understand that i don't understand that does a lot yeah. you know and that you did that really well too because during the the george floyd situation i remember you reaching out to just wanting to talk and listen yeah. and kind of hear my thoughts on the situation and you know it's i i told my wife about that when i told her where i was coming it reminded her about it because you know that's the truth it's it's very important to sympathize and meet people yeah. where they are. Well, I asked you the other day why I did something and with George Floyd and having you here today, why? Because what? Oh. Because I love you, dude. Oh, you love me. That's right. I love you too, man. <laughs> I swear I do. I And I'm telling you, there are, I mean, there's not many people, if any people, that I, whose opinion I trust in real estate uh, more than yours. Uh Sometimes I go to you with like hasty anxiety and I'm like, Rick, uh, answer this, answer that. Uh, how's this looking? You know, like, what are we doing? You know, is this going to be 2007? Am I going to be okay if it's 2007? You tell me if I'm going to be okay. Like, it's all those things and you know, like, it's not going to be 2007, but hey, listen, you'll be fine. And yeah. you're, you're very good at, uh, centering people and it shows with your team. I think you built your team with intention, which is what we're trying to do, Lindsay and myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very admirable and it's fun to watch. Well, cool. And and when you asked me that question, my answer was, I'm not confident in the market, but I'm confident in Fernwood and I'm confident it's in Falk Grove and Gallery. So true. And I could not agree more. Thank you. No, thank you. So I'd like to give a shout out to Podcast Town Studios, our producer. No sleep for creating the music. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you believe that you or someone you know would be an ideal guest and would talk about not what they've done, but really who they are, why don't you reach out to me? I'm the easiest guy in the world to get a hold of. Thank you.